Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that you'd open our eyes to see the glory of the cross, the beauty of the cross, and that we would be compelled to joyfully lay down our lives to live cross-shaped lives for the honor of your name. Amen. Uh, Well, what is your moment of glory? Uh, What is your finest hour? If you look back on your life thus far, what is your finest hour? What's your moment of glory? Or or maybe it's something still to come that you're looking forward to. Uh, What is it that you're going to feel most proud about? Maybe it's a sporting success at high school, shooting the winning goal in the, uh, the cup final or whatever. Maybe it's a performance that you are in, a concert or show. Maybe it's an academic achievement or landing the dream job. Maybe it's uh, what you've done in your family. Well, this passage is about Jesus' moment of glory. And it's not what we expect, because this passage is about the glory of the cross. If you're new to Christian things, then this passage will help to explain why the cross is so important in Christianity, why, why the cross is the symbol of Christianity, why it's central for us as Christians. And this passage will challenge those of us who follow Jesus to ask, how important is the cross in my life? Do I see the, the glory and the beauty of the cross? And to what degree has my life been shaped by it? We're continuing our series in John's Gospel leading up to Easter. We've called it Matters of Life and Death. And we've seen so far Jesus' ability to give life as he raised Lazarus from the dead. We've seen that his ability to give life and his own death are connected. He can give us life because he dies our death on our behalf, in our place. We've seen Mary's response of love to Jesus as she pours a year's wages worth of perfume on Jesus' feet. Seems extreme, even a waste, but Jesus commends her. She's the only one who sees how much Jesus is really worth. And we've seen last week Jesus enter Jerusalem to great acclaim. He rides in as the victorious king, and yet he rides in as the lowly king. He's riding on a donkey. And we were challenged to find ourselves in his kingdom, to share his values, putting the needs of others before our own. And so into the passage this morning, in which the same themes are present and developed, and we hear Jesus' own teaching about his death on the cross, and we hear Jesus' own call to follow him. So three points this morning, they're on the screen. Firstly, the glory of the cross, then the accomplishment of the cross, Finally, the way of the cross. The glory of the cross. Um, News about Jesus is spreading fast, especially his ability to raise the dead. The Pharisees say in verse 19 of John 12, the whole world has gone after him. Jesus is about to go global, and so it's no surprise that a delegation of Greeks, non-Jews, come wanting to find out more about him. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. What a great request. And imagine being able to do that. Imagine being able to see Jesus. Imagine we had a time machine here today and you could jump in 
click the buttons and go back and see Jesus with your own eyes. Let me ask you, which events in Jesus' life, which incident, which story from the Gospels would you most want to go back and see? Maybe the feeding of the 5,000, to see that with your own eyes. I mean, how did that work? Maybe you want to go in the boat with the disciples to see Jesus calm the storm with a word, see him walking across the sea on the water. Maybe to Lazarus's tomb to hear Jesus say, Lazarus, come out and see the dead man walking out of the tomb. It raises the question, what was Jesus' finest hour? What was his moment of glory? Jesus says his moment of glory is about to arrive. Look at verse 23. Jesus replies to this request, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you've been reading John so far, this would be ringing bells, because at a few points up to chapter 12, this has been hinted at. Jesus has said on a number of occasions, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Mark's nodding his head because we've been working through John in our DNA. And so there's great significance at this point because Jesus says, my hour has come. The moment has arrived for the Son of Man to be glorified. What is it? What is this moment of glory? Well, from verse 24 and the verses that follow, it's clear that Jesus is thinking about his death. Verse 24, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. We see the same thing down in verse 32. Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up, from the earth will draw all people to myself. Again, verse 32, he's talking about his moment of glory, when he's going to be lifted up and draw people in. And if we didn't have the following verse, we'd probably think he's talking about his resurrection or his ascension. And yet verse 33 tells us that he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. He's going to be lifted up on the cross. But more than that, his death on the cross is his being lifted up, his exaltation, his glorification. Jesus' moment of glory is his death. Now that is surprising because the cross sure didn't look like glory. It looked like shame and defeat. It looked like suffering and failure. Crucifixion was bloody and brutal. It was so gruesome, Romans didn't even mention it in polite company. The Jews believed a crucified person was under the curse of God. And yet Jesus says that his impending death on the cross is his glory. Not just that his death is the road to glory, you know, suffering now, glory later. There's some truth to that. But what Jesus is saying is that his death itself is the hour of his glorification. This was the very purpose of Jesus' life. The cross was absolutely central to his mission. So look at verse 27. He says, my soul is troubled. That's a weak translation. Stirred up, distressed. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. The cross was not easy for Jesus 
great trouble, distress in his spirit, anguish. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The cross was not easy, but it was the whole reason he came. And if that's the case, then the cross is absolutely central to understanding Christianity. If you don't understand the cross, you don't understand Christ. You can't have Christ without his cross. Now, if this is true, if, if the glory of God is revealed in the cross, then can you see that God is turning the values of this world upside down? The world prizes strength and power, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know what moment of glory, your finest hour that you thought of, but I'm sure it was a, a moment of high achievements, a, a moment in which your gifts and talents were on display. The world prizes strength and power and achievement, survival of the fittest. There's no prize for second best. Glory goes to the high achievers. But Jesus tells us that his glory is seen in his weakness. The gospel is the message of a God who gave up his power, who became weak and vulnerable, a God who suffered and died, a God who was defeated. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the message of the cross is foolishness to the world. And yet to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than the world's wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. You see, it's through the weakness of the cross that God shows his great power to save. It's through the defeat of the cross that God wins his greatest victory. It's through the shame and humiliation of the cross that we see the glory and the beauty of our Savior. For the other religions of the world, the cross is a scandal. That, that we would believe in a God who dies like this, well, it's blasphemous. But for those of us who follow Jesus, it is glory, isn't it? We, we glory in the cross. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation where your love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. And, and through the cross, our values are turned upside down as well, aren't they? We see that the way up is the way down. The way to true greatness is humble service. The way to real glory is to humble yourself. The way to get true riches is to give your money away. This all raises the question, why? Why is the cross Jesus' moment of glory? We've hinted at it, but what is the cross all about? What did the cross accomplish? Our second point, the accomplishment of the cross. Look again at verse 24. Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The glory of the cross is that through his death, Jesus brings life to many. Think of a kernel or a grain of wheat. We might have a picture of some wheat. There you go. On, on its own, one grain of wheat, it's just a small, hard, stone-like thing. But if you bury it in the ground and it dies then it springs up 
and produces many grains, a harvest. Jesus is saying, if if I hadn't died, I would have been alone, the only child of God in the world. But through my death, many, many, many people will receive life. There'll be a great harvest. And that harvest is still being brought in, isn't it? Countless numbers of people being gathered to Jesus. That's what he's talking about in verse 32. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Not not all people without exception, but all kinds of people, all peoples, all nations. Look back at what John told us in chapter 11, verse 51. John's little commentary on the high priest Caiaphas. He didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. This is what we've seen throughout the story of the Bible. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12, to to bless Abraham and his descendants, and that Abraham's family would be a blessing to the whole world. God's plan is to gather a people from all nations, like the Greeks who've come to see Jesus. And so we read at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, chapter 7. After this, this is the same author, John. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This great multitude that God is gathering, the center of their worship is the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain, Jesus, who died for them to give them life. Through his death, Jesus is gathering a people, his servants, his followers. And in verses 25 and 26, he promises them life, eternal life. Look at verse 26 again. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. We follow Jesus now in the way of the cross, and we have the promise of his presence with us forever. Where I am, says Jesus, my servant also will be. What a promise. And then he says, my father will honor the one who serves me. Now that can pass us by. We're not wowed by it because we don't think about honor very much. That isn't a category that we think in. But to be honored by the father is to be commended, to be approved, to be delighted in. In that little phrase, there are the answers to so many of the deepest longings of our hearts. But how does that work? How does the death of Jesus mean that we experience the Father's delight? Well, we saw it a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? That John wants us to understand that Jesus' death was on our behalf, in our place. That the context for this whole section in John is the Passover. Just look back at 11.55, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover. Verse 12, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, that's the Passover festival. 
verse 20 in our passage, the Greeks were among those who come up to worship at the festival. 13 verse 1, it was just before the Passover festival. But John is repeating the point. He's wanting us to see that everything that's happening around Jesus' death is in the context of the Passover. He told us right back in chapter 1 that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the true Passover Lamb. As Jack's told us in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to celebrate at the Passover together. And the whole idea of the Passover was that the Lamb dies instead of the people. The Lamb was killed and the blood of the Lamb was put on the door frames of their houses so that when the angel of death came through the land of Egypt, striking down the firstborn son in every family, he passed over the Israelite homes because a death had already occurred. The Lamb had died instead of the son. Well, Jesus is the true Passover Lamb who dies instead of us. God's judgment passes over us because a death has already occurred. Our death has occurred. Jesus dying in our place. You see, on the cross, Jesus is treated as we deserve so that we can be treated as he deserves. And what does Jesus deserve? What honor what praise what love what delight just think of the father's heart towards his son on the cross jesus experienced the condemnation that you deserve so that you can experience the delight from the father that he deserves so that you can hear the father say to you what he said to jesus at his baptism you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased, in whom I take great delight. The glory of the cross is seen in what it accomplishes. Through his death, Jesus brings life, eternal life, relationship with the Father, to enjoy the embrace and love and delight of the Father forever. Finally, the way of the cross. But back to verse 25. Jesus says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, Jesus is talking here in hyperbole. He's not saying we need to hate our life, but rather anyone who loves their life more than me will lose it, while anyone who comparatively hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me. Follow me in the way of the cross. Together, I think these verses are a call to lay down our lives in service of Jesus. Not to hold on to your life. Not to cling on to your rights and your possessions and your comforts and your control. But to let go. To, to lay your life down in service of Jesus. To follow him in the way of the cross. To be a Christian is to be a follower. We want to follow Jesus, his teaching, his example. And the primary way that we're called in the New Testament to follow Jesus is the way of the cross. On Easter Sunday, Din and Trang and Kang and Mia are going to be baptized. 
Baptism symbolizes this death to self and rising to new life of service to Christ. They'll be signed with the sign of the cross. You see, baptism symbolizes the fact that we've been saved by the cross and our lives are to be shaped by the cross. And, and this way of the cross, it, it isn't the calling of a few. It's the stamp over every Christian's life. We're to live cross-shaped lives, lives marked by love, sacrificial, self-giving, status-renouncing love. There's a helpful parallel, I think, for these verses in Revelation 12. It speaks about Christians who've died for their faith in Christ. It says, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. It's what Jesus is talking about, isn't it? Anyone who loves their life. Well, these people, they weren't clinging on to life. They didn't love their life so much. Their allegiance to Jesus demanded that they lay their life down in the ultimate sense, and they did. Tim Chester has written a great book, The Ordinary Hero, Living the Cross and Resurrection. Let me read you a little bit from here. He says, in persecuted churches, martyrdom is written into the call to conversion. A, de a decision to become a Christian might well mean persecution, ostracization, or imprisonment. To decide for Christ is to decide for death. When the decision for Christ means a decision for martyrdom, everything else is effectively decided. A thousand de decisions about money, service, career, lifestyle, reputation are all already made in that one decision to follow Jesus to the end. The choice for martyrdom contains within it a whole life of cross-centered discipleship. And this is the point. Not that we should look to be martyred, but that we should call people to cross-shaped lives of self-denial. He asks, why is the church in the West not growing rapidly? Perhaps one reason is that we haven't made that decision to die. For it's in dying, whether dying as a martyr or dying to self, that we show the worth of Christ to our watching world. In the second and third centuries, there were enormous plagues that ravished the Roman world. What did people do at that time? Well, many people fled those cities to get out so that they wouldn't catch the disease. They left in droves and left the sick behind to die. Um, sometimes even family members were, were left to die. One group stayed, the Christians. Why? Well, because the way of the cross had been burned into their hearts. Because of the dying love of Jesus, they decided that they would stay. And they would take care not only of their own sick, but the sick of their enemies as well. And it cost them. Many of the Christians who stayed became infected and died themselves. But through their sacrificial care, many of the sick who would have died survived. 
And historians tell us that after the plague subsided, a huge proportion of people in those cities came into the church. Thousands were converted. Those Christians changed the world. Their sacrificial love was incredibly fruitful. Unless a kernel of wheat dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It bears much fruit. We've been showing, aren't we, that the way to fruitfulness is sacrificial service. The way to life is death. 